Welcome to the Management Insights Podcast Series hosted by McGraw-Hill. My name is Debbie Clare, Executive Marketing Manager for our management portfolio. Today's topic, make teamwork easier with facilitation skills. Our guest, Suzanne Dianish. Thanks for joining us. Happy to be here, Debbie. Tell us a little bit about yourself. So I have been a professor for over 20 years. However, I started my career in the aerospace industry. For five years, I was an internal consultant. And one of the things I did was facilitate many, many hundreds of teams. This was at a time where there were lots of changes in the workforce. We were getting smaller and having to deal with doing the same things with fewer numbers of people. And so all of these teams, all these quality improvement projects and processes needed people to help them do that. When I came back into academia to get my PhD and beyond, I realized more and more organizations, whether for-profit, not-for-profit, educational institutions, are finding that there is potentially great value in the use of teams to do things. But sometimes the teams don't always produce the value that they are purported to produce. And so facilitation skills is one of those skill sets that I think can make or break a team in terms of not only what it accomplishes, but perhaps more importantly, how it goes about the work of the team. Well, let's dig in. Research suggests in some cultures, teamwork doesn't come naturally. What does that mean? (laughs) So you may or may not know this. There is an element of culture. There are a number of dimensions that have been studied. This one in particular is called individualism and collectivism. In a collectivistic culture, And there are a number of cultures that are collectivistic, such as, for example, in China, um, in parts of South America and Mexico. What that means is from day one, people are brought up in the value of us working together, collaborating. No one person is more important than the other. And in fact, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And so in those societies, there is this natural tendency towards teamwork. In America and other Anglophone countries, it's not quite that. It's very individualistic. It's all about me. It's what I want. It's what I did. It's referring to the I in speaking to the boss, even when I represent a team. Well, I was able to accomplish, well, wasn't that the team? Well, anyway, <laughs> so in, in a society where individualism is more the norm, again, exceptions, of course, across those two cultures or, or cultural identities, it means that working together with a team, while it might look like fun, it might look like, oh, we can get the best of each other's strengths by working together, it doesn't always work that way. And there's fighting, sometimes on the surface and sometimes under the surface. So our society, even though we're called upon in the workplace, in schools, to work together as teams, you hear a lot of people complain about being on a team or being asked to be on a team because they know how potentially fraught with conflict those team projects may be. Why do some employees and students dislike working in teams? Well, first of all, (laughs) and I ask this question, 
How many of you in my class, how many of you, whenever the professor says, all right, this is going to be a team project, right? They roll their eyes. And in answer to my question, how many of you think that team projects would be fine as long as I can do all the work myself and not have to work with these idiots? Because after all, I am the smartest person in the room. And <laughs> without, thank you for laughing. Uh, my students, my executives, they laugh too. And they laugh because it's true. In an individualistic society in particular, we feel like we are the smartest person in the room. And why would I want to drag down my intelligence and worse, waste time allowing other people to contribute when I can do it right, I can do it quickly, and I don't have to deal with these idiots. Now, I don't believe that. I'm just telling you, in 20 plus years of teaching and dealing with teams, this is a feeling that a lot of people get. The team wouldn't be so bad if I can just do the work myself and let these other guys, you know, go do something else. Mm -hmm. So why are many teams dysfunctional? Where do I start? <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, you may have heard the term team dynamics. Mm -hmm. Well, they don't call it dynamics for nothing right? If, if the ways in which human beings, unpredictable human beings work together were static, we wouldn't be having this conversation. But the problem, not the problem, the challenge is you and I are both women, right? So we might already have some things in common. We are both living on the East Coast, so we have some other things in common. A lot of what derails teams is actually the stuff under the surface, the things that we don't see, how we are raised, what we value, what we believe, our attitudes towards certain things, certain people, certain ways of working. You may think it's perfectly legitimate, for example, to cut corners a little bit, to, you know, if, if nobody knows and I get away with it, it's okay. Somebody else can be very much, no, that's unethical, I won't do it. So, how we work, what we believe, what we take with us to the workplace, which again is often under the surface, is what often gets us in trouble. Because then what might look on the surface to be a disagreement about how to complete this project, then it gets emotional. Then it gets personal. Then it gets, I'm not working with you because you blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So if I only work by myself. I don't have to deal with other people's, quote unquote, wrong values, attitudes, beliefs, right? Because what's right? Me. Everybody else is wrong. And I'm exaggerating just to make the point. So I think, again, it's, it's not the diversity that we see on the surface, male, female, old, young, dark, light, whatever. A lot of it gets in the way is what's below the surface, which we don't see, but which affects the way we interact with one another. So as we started with the topic being, you know, make teamwork easier with facilitation skills, let's now dig in on what exactly is a facilitator? What do they do? What don't they do? Great question, Debbie. So the word facilitate comes from the Latin root facil, which means to make easy. And people often don't quite understand what that means. They, they I have been a team facilitator, a hired process consultant, if you will. And sometimes there's this belief, oh, good, you're here. Take over. It's like, 
well, sure, that one interpretation would be that makes our job easier. But really, I often see my job as a facilitator, and I write about this, to make easier for the team to actually do what the team needs to do when I'm gone. My job, in, in, in a way, is to work myself out of a job. If I can model effective team behavior, effective conflict management, effective assertive communication, people saying what they mean, meaning what they say, and others truly, deeply, actively listening and going through decision processes, not that are expedient, oh, okay, six said yes, five said no, but digging a little deeper and trying to kind of build some baseline understanding of one another, where we're coming from, to move toward consensus, if I model that, if I teach it, if I gently correct or sometimes not so gently correct people who are not behaving in ways that are conducive to the team's process, I can help them become self-facilitating where they wouldn't need an outsider come in and make their process easier. Now, I, I haven't entirely told you what they do and what they don't do, so let me, let me go a little bit further. So what they are doing is helping the team help themselves. Get clarity on what their task really is and isn't. Sometimes that involves pushing back on management. You asked us to do X, but that doesn't seem reasonable where we don't have enough resources or time or, or budget. Um, it's about helping them, as I mentioned, make good choices about how they want to decide. Yes, majority rule is quick but it leaves almost as many people unhappy about the outcome as happy. And if you're going to, in the next step, after recommending the solution to this problem, implement it, if you have almost half as many people unhappy with the solution, guess how excited they're going to be about implementing it? Not very. But what a facilitator doesn't do is do the work of the team. In fact, a facilitator should try, and I say try because it's not possible, they should try to be as objective as possible. We're all biased, full stop. But a good facilitator, an experienced facilitator, is aware of his or her biases and is able to kind of come to grips with that. So a good facilitator will point out issues in the process, but won't say, well, my suggestion for this solution to this business problem is X. And the reason that's so dangerous is because the person who looks objective, who looks like a third party, but is now adding to the content, could be seen as very manipulative, right? Now that I have your attention, let me give you my idea. So again, it, it, the, the facilitator's role is to focus on the process, the how, how we communicate, how we discuss, how we grapple with decisions, how we bring new members in and get others to depart, um, and how, how we work collaboratively to get to a certain endpoint, not so much the what. Can any team member facilitate Absolutely. And I'm glad you asked that question, Debbie. I like to talk about the facilitator and facilitative skills. So uh, not everybody, whether in schools or in workplaces, has access to a trained process facilitator. Sometimes they're paid <laughs> for mm -hmm. this skill set. They so, come in and they consult. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And so if 
somebody can teach members of the team the kinds of process skills that I've been talking about, anyone, and in fact, everyone on the team, the onus is on them to practice these facilitative skills to ensure that people are being heard and not shut down, that decisions are being made in an appropriate way. And so by being self-facilitating, yes, it doesn't mean that the team will never face conflict, but it does mean that when they do, they can walk away from a solved conflict feeling good about it, not feeling railroaded into a particular direction. Should the team leader facilitate? Uh, Another great question. So in how I described focusing on content versus the process, or said differently, the what versus the how, some team leaders can be very facilitative, Mm -hmm. right? So they're very clear on what the team's task is. They're very clear on what their goals are and what individual roles or contributions might be. And so if they can also simultaneously say, oh, hang on a second, Debbie, we haven't heard from Jake yet, that's great. The the problem comes in the way I described it before is when the process and the content begin to kind of integrate or blur, good word, where people might see them as nice on the surface, but manipulative below the surface. So one of the recommendations that I make, and and I've had a lot of experience facilitating teams, I might actually say, well, I'm going to take my facilitator hat off for the moment and say, since you guys are talking about revamping the performance appraisal process at this company, I do happen to have expertise in this area. Now, I'm willing to share that expertise as it pertains to this task because we're talking about it or not. It's your choice. And then most of the time they say, yeah, please do. And after I've done, I will then say, okay, I'm putting my facilitator hat back on. And this way I try to be clear and upfront and fair about I'm not trying to tell you what to do and how to do it, but if I do have some specific expertise about the content that I can lend and you give me permission to do so, I will. But I'll make really clear what role I'm playing at that moment. Right. So you're putting it on the table for them to make the decision if they'd like to hear you. You're not really trying to influence them, but you have expertise. Put it on the table and then that will allow them to facilitate the direction they want to go. Exactly. Exactly. And how do you learn these skills? (laughs) Well, like anything in life, you don't learn how to ski by reading a book, right? You have to get in there. It gets messy. Sometimes it's painful. And I'm talking both about facilitation and skiing because I do both. (laughs) I must say I'm a far better facilitator than I am a skier. Um, So it's a combination of skill building. So as I have mentioned, there are a number of identifiable skill sets around communication, conflict, problem solving, meeting skills, right? How to hold uh, an effective and efficient meeting. There There are a lot of skills that make up the toolkit, if you will, of a facilitator. And learning those skills, that's a given. There's another set of skills that I call interventions. So 
when the process begins to go astray for whatever reason, either one person's hijacking the process or, or worse, Debbie, somebody is being silent. And while it's tempting to think silence is agreement, I can tell you in my experience, there are as many interpretations of silence as there are people using it in a meeting, mm-hmm. right? So there's a set of interventions, and, and I, I've written about them in the book. Some of them are more gentle or subtle. And if they don't work, and I say start there, if they don't work, kind of move into a little bit more moderate category of being a little bit more in your face, or as kids these days might say, in your grills, right? And then at the top end, it's like, okay, there is some serious stuff going on at this meeting, and I'm going to do sort of this this real-time, hey, guys, we have to talk. This isn't working. How are we going to solve this? And kind of reflect what I'm seeing and put it on the table. Because again, I want them to help themselves. If every time there's an issue in the team and I'm solving it, they become not only dependent upon me, but they're not building their own skill set. So part of learning facilitation skills is, is learning sort of the, the background about group dynamics, why teams have difficulties, what, uh, what is the difference between process and content, what are those specific skill sets that I labeled, and, and also um, what are some specific interventions. And like anything, it's a toolbox that can grow with experience. And that's the next big part, experience. Like skiing, you know, you start off with the simple slopes and you get to the more difficult ones. And you practice, you practice, you practice. I would say a subcomponent of that is observing a really good facilitator. Um, I, Modeling their behavior. Absolutely. And, and even having like a feedback discussion with them afterward, like truly observing what they're doing, why they did what they did, when they did it, what the outcome was, what they might have done differently, what you might have done differently. And and I will say this much too, it's important to be authentic, to be who you are. I just taught a two-week class on facilitation skills to master's students. And in the end, the final project, the final paper I had them write included a question on what is your brand of facilitation? Because we're all different. I've been at this for 25 years, and so I'm very comfortable getting up in the face of a, you know, a 55-year-old executive and, and pointing out what he or she is doing that's causing the group to unravel. Somebody with far less experience may not be so comfortable doing that, and that's okay. Your brand may be more subtle than mine. I'm going to tell you what I'm seeing, and I'm going to say it straight up because <laughs> that's what I do. So there's no one way to facilitate, but learning the basics practicing, getting feedback, possibly if you have the opportunity, having your facilitation skills um, recorded and played back for you to see how you get into the mix, how you, you know, because sometimes, by the way, and I haven't said this before, sometimes the most facilitative thing a facilitator can do is absolutely nothing. Let the group suffer a little bit. Let them feel the pain. Let them realize that what they're doing, whether they're ganging up on someone or ignoring the process at hand or ignoring what they're actually here to accomplish, let them suffer a little bit so that they see this isn't working. We need help. We need to focus on the process as well as the content. So observing, getting feedback, and and just doing it, practicing. 
Any last closing comments for your peers? One thing I would say, Debbie, is that this is a skill that I had the opportunity to develop at a fairly young age, given what I did in the first part of my career. And it has served me extremely well in life in in many different settings, different kinds of organizations, workplaces, even faculty meetings. (laughs) I couldn't imagine that. Oh, trust me. (laughs) PhD doesn't always translate into excellent interpersonal skills. Um, (laughs) And so I guess what I would say is there are a lot of great books that talk about teams and team dynamics and functional and dysfunctional teams. There aren't a lot of books that talk about the skill of facilitation. And if I were to make a little plug, this this book is one of the few in the market, maybe the only, that has an entire chapter devoted to developing facilitation skills to be used in a team setting or to be used in in any interpersonal um, interaction. And do you want to tell our audience the title of your book? Sure. Interpersonal Skills in Organizations. Excellent. So Suzanne, thank you for sharing your perspective, experience, and advice. To our listeners, check back for future topics and spread the word to your colleagues about our podcast series. Why? Because learning changes everything.